0: You can fill in this blank pretty easily. What is it precisely that the Bible says is the power of God for salvation? And no doubt many of you are already thinking of Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's very clear from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian believers of the one tool that he used to see them come to faith in Christ he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, no one is regenerated. No one is given the gift of faith. No one is given the gift of repentance solely because of convincing sermons or oratory technique, which is what Paul was referring to. The power was not in the presentation. The power was in the content of the message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we've said this here at Grace countless times that salvation is affected in the hearts of people through the truth of the word of God, whether it is preached or whether it is read or whether it is explained. We understand this. We understand that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. We understand that this is why the Apostle Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word and do the work of the evangelist. That's the same thing. It's essentially the same exact thing. We understand that this is why Mark 1, 14 records that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He was a proclaimer. He was a preacher. We understand that this is why we agree so wholeheartedly with the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews four twelve and 13, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. That all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So. We understand that from the the viewpoint, the standpoint of approaching our salvation, we understand that it was the Word of God which brought you to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think most often we think about this concept, as I said, in the arena of approaching the moment of salvation, that we recall hearing the gospel of Christ, we recall coming to the cross for forgiveness of sin. But I want to suggest that this knowledge really provides for us a a great gift from the Lord in a slightly different way also. One in which you now trust in the reality of your standing before God as fully justified, fully set apart for salvation. So rather than approaching this knowledge that the word of God is the power of salvation, the gospel is the power of salvation from the viewpoint of the moment right before salvation, I want to suggest perhaps a different viewpoint as well. And that is the subject of our current series, which we're now well into, Blessed Assurance. And in this series, what we're doing is considering the stunning high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, and specifically the the overwhelming objective evidence that we have available to us concerning the, the assurance, the security, the absolute certainty of our salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. Our salvation comes through Christ Our sin is now forgiven. And so because of the richness of John 17, we're approaching this text topically. We're considering 13 different pieces of objective evidence. We did one introductory message and then 13 pieces of evidence concerning our total confidence that at the end of your life, God will carry you to heaven, that your salvation was real and it is assured. So what's this slightly different way of looking At the understanding that it is the word of God, it is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. This is our objective piece of evidence this morning that you can have blessed assurance because of the word's power. So what is it that's slightly different in our thinking about the word's power we're not thinking so much in terms of intellectual agreement, that salvation is only possible through the gospel of Christ rather than any man-made method of supposedly bringing people to Christ. We agree with that. We intellectually understand that. Instead, we're looking back not from the vantage point of remembering when you were about to be saved, but from the standpoint of having already been saved. In other words, looking back at the result of the power of the Word of God, because not only do we need to intellectually agree that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation, listen, we need to agree with ourselves that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Instead of just looking at the moment before salvation, we need to look at the moment after, the the second moment after, the, the day after, the week after, the month after, the years after, Because this is what the internal struggle can be. And this is the whole reason we're doing this series. Because I hear from believers questions like, I'm suffering so intensely, maybe I was never saved in the first place. Or I continue struggling with the same sin, so perhaps I was never saved in the first place. Or I don't feel like the Lord has blessed me as I see others being blessed by him, so maybe I'm not actually in Christ. Maybe I missed the boat somehow. Or I've heard people say, my Christian life just seems more shallow than others that I see, and so may, maybe I'm not saved. Those are those moments when we turn around and we look back. Not to a contrived emotional experience, not even to necessarily being able to pinpoint some exact moment to say that you're saved. I've said this before, I don't think anybody knows the exact moment they are regenerated. I think that is the knowledge of God and God alone. I think you can come close. But only he has that knowledge. But we look at these moments, we need to see with confidence that indeed the word of God was the power of God that saved me. That the gospel itself overwhelms our doubts and our fears because Satan would like nothing more than to have you walk through your whole life looking over your shoulder wondering if that moment of salvation was real. And what God would have us do is to turn around and remember that, yes, I heard the gospel and the gospel is indeed and was at that moment the power of God unto my salvation. It was sufficient. And boy, oh boy, John 17 is filled with this encouragement. Concerning particularly the power of the word of God in his act of salvation from sin. So the guide our thinking in this encouragement about the word's power the power of the gospel, I just want to give you some key words about this amazing gospel given to us through letters, which are formed into words, which now lead us to eternity. And so we'll just do some key words to help us understand the word's power. First key word we'll just call priority. Priority. Now we're going to venture for a moment into the introduction to the prayer here in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and then he begins his prayer. Which words had Jesus just spoken? Well, what we've been referring to is the farewell address of Jesus Christ, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, especially 14, 15, and 16. This was, as you recall, his special time with his apostles in which he's giving them comfort and instruction and hope and revelation about their future ministries And this is, of course, all happening the night Jesus would be betrayed. But we should know this something from the text here and let the text speak this truth to us. The Apostle John does not introduce this great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ by saying, after this or next what happened was, no, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words. Jesus never spoke an ill-timed word, such as all of us have. He never spoke an inaccurate word. He always spoke what the Father wished him to speak. He spoke every word which needed to be said. He didn't speak too many, and he didn't speak too few. He spoke words with inherent power because he was saying them, and therefore the word of God is living and active and powerful. I read earlier from Romans 10, 17, which calls the scriptures the Word of Christ. I mean, listen, the Word of Christ is not just the red letters in your Bible, if you have a red letter edition. The Word of Christ starts off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Word of Christ ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen, Revelation twenty two twenty one. The words of Christ were his priority in his ministry, and yes, he healed, and yes, he did great miracles, but those actions, listen carefully, those actions were always the background. They were either the introduction or the conclusion to his words. The words were always the priority. And this is very encouraging to us. You know why? Because we can understand words. We understand them. This is why the Puritans were so adamant that their tiny, tiny children would learn to read so that they would read the words of God. This is encouraging to me because if the words were the priority of Christ and if he always spoke exactly the right words and if you believed those words, then you've believed the only thing possible to be saved and that is the word of Christ. There is no other method. And so priority is a comfort for us. Here's a second key word. We'll use the word permanent. Permanent. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have kept your word. Now, we should eliminate first what this does not mean. Jesus is not saying... These disciples among me have passed all the behavior tests with flying colors they 've kept all your commandments, and so now they can have assurance of salvation. If that were the case, then we 're in trouble because they didn 't pass all the behavior tests at all. What is he speaking of then? Well, what he's speaking of is keeping of the word in the sense of continuing in the gospel that they believed and it was genuine faith, and they are in fact converted. They believe the words of Christ, they follow the gospel of Christ, they submitted to the authority of the Word of Christ. Now, Jesus illustrated this exact concept in his famous parable of the soils, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. And the, the gospel, the Word of God, in this parable is pictured as seed, seed which is scattered. And you recall that the seed falls onto four types of soil. The hard soil, from which the seed is snatched away by Satan. The rocky soil, which the seed springs up briefly but has no roots, and so tribulation and and suffering reveals the plant as false, and it withers and dies. And then there's the thorny soil, in which the emerging plant is choked out by the cares of the world for desires for riches and success and worldliness, but then there is the good soil, that is the heart prepared by God to receive the seed of the word of God. And Jesus said in Mark 4.20, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. In other words, their lives are characterized as a blooming plant with the fruit of the Spirit and the blossoming spirituality of the Lord. And that picture ends then, by examining what is above the ground, the thriving plant, the fruit that's being born. But did you know this? What the three plants with the failed seeds all had in common? They had no roots. They had no roots. They got blown away. But what would we find if we looked below ground at the thriving plant? the the one in which the the, the seed has grown. Oh, just a couple of examples that are maybe easier for us to understand. A spring wheat stalk grows about four feet tall, but the roots are just as far beneath the ground. And in fact, winter wheat, the roots can be twice as long as the actual plant itself. So you, you can't pull it up if you tried. Corn roots in the dry season can go over six feet underground looking for moisture, meaning it's very, very strong above the ground. A couple of years ago, speaking of roots, an amateur gardener in Minnesota grew what turned out to be the heaviest carrot in history. 22 pounds, 7 ounces, and no one could get it out of the ground. They had to dig and dig and dig this thing out. A wild fig tree at Echo Caves in South Africa holds an amazing world record for the deepest roots over 400 feet straight down below the surface. So how deep are the roots of the gospel of Christ which have taken hold in you how permanent is the gospel well we said it last week Romans 8:39 nor height nor what depth Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The roots of the gospel go down to limitless depths. And you could not, and Satan cannot, and no worldly power can ever dig underneath them to pull them up. The roots of the gospel of Christ have taken hold never to be uprooted. The word implanted in you is permanent. This is a third key word we could look at. We'll use the word providential, providential. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. I have given them the words that you gave me. The providence of God, it speaks to the divine orchestration of God, and we might call it behind-the-scenes work, so to speak. In fact, just using the disciples as an example, the providence of God brought the word of God through the person of Christ, to each of these 11 who are now in the company of Christ as he prays. And so at the very base of this providence of God, God had to have each of them born in the right time, in the right place, to have crossed paths with Christ. And yes, Jesus crossed paths with tens of thousands of people. Let's say that he even crossed paths with a million people, Considering the fact that there have been an estimated 107 billion people born in all of human history, the odds of being born in the right place at the right time to come across Jesus are astronomical. It takes the providence of God. But beyond that, we're just considering the apostles still. Consider, for example, Matthew. Matthew was sitting in his tax booth collecting money dishonestly, and at that moment, Jesus walks by him and says, follow me. And he did. Considering the fact that in Israel there are nearly 10,000 square miles, Jesus crossed paths with Matthew, called him, and would later write through him the very first gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are astronomical odds that can only be the providence of God. Or think about Philip. John 1.43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Jesus didn't find Philip in the sense of accidentally coming across him. He found Philip in the sense of looking for him when Philip didn't even know he needed to be saved. And could we just go behind the scenes for a moment? We talked about this when we went through uh, the gospel of John earlier in, in John 1. It wasn't that Jesus was walking around and saw Philip and go, Hey, I think he'd make a great apostle. Let's go ahead and take him on here, sign him up. Behind the scenes, in the, in the sovereignty of God, if we, can, if we can do this just in a way that we understand, it's as if Jesus was looking at a stopwatch. We'll call it our phone. How about that? And he's going five, four, three, two, one. In the plan of God, Philip should be right there. There he is. Philip, follow me. That is providence. Now how about Nathaniel? Philip was friends with Nathanael and went and told him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael seized upon this glorious providential moment by saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet Jesus knew the heart of Nathanael. He knew he was a loyal Jew. He knew he was a true worshiper of Yahweh. When Nathanael asked Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And what did Nathaniel do? He worshiped Christ. The moment you heard the gospel, the moment you believed the gospel, was no accident. It was planned in eternity past. And can I put it this way? Your worthless life is... Your wretched, sinful life because of rebellion and sin was unbeknownst to you on a collision course with somebody who would tell you of Jesus. And that was planned. Somebody who would say, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved from your sins. We can give you a fourth key word. We'll call this one process. Process. Verse 17 sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We'll work our way to the idea of process, but we need to provide some groundwork first. Now, verse 17 here, this is for many the most familiar verse in this glorious prayer of our Lord. He asks the Father to sanctify his disciples, and verse 20 again gives us room to apply this to all believers in Christ. Sanctify is an important Greek verb in the New Testament, which means to make holy, to set apart, to dedicate. It's the New Testament equivalent of the the Old Testament concepts such as consecration or to make something sacred, to set it apart for service to the Lord. The theological concept of sanctification is this same idea of being set apart in salvation and it has some rich layers to it which are, are worth it to us to take a, a short moment on here? There is sanctification in the past. That is the moment of your conversion to Christ when you were set apart, when you were made holy, as it were, a newly minted child of God in Christ. And if you've had the privilege of talking to somebody who just received Christ yesterday, they literally shine. They're just like a brand new coin. And they have a smile, and they have a joy. Why? Because they know, I was just sanctified. I was just set apart. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, in his greeting to the church at Corinth, Paul referred to the church as those sanctified, past tense in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The same root word as sanctify. In other words, to be sanctified is to be saintified, so to speak. In fact, Paul demonstrates a very close connection between sanctification and justification. That is the act of God in salvation, where he credits you with the righteousness of Christ himself and declares you not guilty. He he puts these two very close. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And it was the ministry of the Spirit of God who set you apart in this way. First Peter one two says that your salvation was according, quote, to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit set you apart. He made you holy. He dedicated you. But then there's also sanctification in the present, in the present moment. This is what we sometimes call progressive sanctification, this doesn't speak to your salvation, but to the fruit of your salvation, the outworking of God's work in your life as you're being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, as an example. That is our present work toward Christ-likeness. Romans 6.19, Paul says to present yourselves, quote, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is the idea presented numerous times in the New Testament of your walk with Christ. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, your walk. But then there's also sanctification in the future. This is the consummation, the, the completion of perfection and utter, sinless Christ-likeness. Sometimes theologians call this ultimate sanctification. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final step of your salvation. It happens when you see Christ. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, beloved, we are God's children now. That's justification. That's Initial sanctification, and we know we will, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now, certainly at one level or another, these three concepts of sanctification overlap with each other here in verse 17, but is that specifically what He's referring to? Probably not sanctification in the past, since he's praying for something that's in the future. It might be that he's speaking of our progressive sanctification in the present. And we definitely affirm that our maturing in Christ, our Christ-likeness happens through the truth. It happens through the Word of God. We understand that. Spiritual maturity and growth and obedience is impossible outside our continual feeding on and submitting to the Scriptures. So, progressive sanctification is definitely a legitimate application here of verse 17. And maybe he's speaking of future sanctification, ultimate sanctification, since he is praying for ultimate sanctification elsewhere in the same prayer. Multiple times he prays for his people to be one in the same way that he and his father are one In verse 24, he prays for all who belong to him to be with him where he is. That is a prayer for completion, for consummation. But remember that at its base meaning, at the core meaning, sanctification is that of being set apart, of being made exclusive. And the immediate context of this request tells us most specifically what Jesus is referring to. Verse 18, look with me at this verse. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, here he's speaking specifically of his disciples, but he's proclaiming to the Father that they're being sent into the world. In other words, this is sanctification of mission, of their mission, their purpose. And in fact, in John's gospel, other than in this prayer, the Greek verb to make holy, to sanctify, is only used one other time. John ten thirty six is used by Jesus about himself, that he is the one quote whom the Father consecrated, same Greek word, and what sent into the world. And right here, Jesus uses the same verb two more times. Verse nineteen, and for their sake, I consecrate, same verb, myself that they also may be sanctified, same verb, in truth. And so here, Jesus is saying that he's consecrated. He has set himself apart for the mission on earth so that his disciples in turn, and by extension, us as well, could also be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, consecrated for the mission of kingdom expansion. Okay, what does that have to do with the idea of process? The disciples were sanctified. They were set apart. For the mission of kingdom expansion, of proclaiming the gospel. And by extension, we have been sanctified, set apart for the mission of kingdom expansion. What is the tool? What is the singular method, the singular power for accomplishing this mission? It is the word of God. Verse 17, set them apart for their mission in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, that they may also be set apart in mission, so to speak, in Truth. Listen, it is solely and only the revealing and explaining of the truth of God's word that is the only process by which God will add to the roles of the redeemed. And Jesus said this of his process. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself, meaning that he set himself apart to proclaim and to preach. Mark 1, 38, Jesus told his disciples, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there, for that is why I came. That's why I came, to preach. Now, why does this process give you great comfort and great assurance? Think back on a mo- for a moment to your own repentance to your submission to Christ and salvation, what was it that was the tool of the Lord to bring you this salvation? It was the word of God. It might have been a sermon you heard. It might have been directly reading the Bible. It might have been someone at Starbucks explaining the gospel to you. But no one, no one is saved outside the revelation of scripture. No one is. And in looking back at that moment or that series of moments when the truth of God began to penetrate your hardened heart, you can have confidence that you were brought to faith by the only process that God has ordained. That is the truth of God's word. It's the only process. And that's how you got here. And why is this so very, very comforting? Oh, this is so comforting because the great invitation to salvation that Isaiah 55 tells us, he he gives this, this great Come to me. It's like the Old Testament version of Christ saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It tells us of the saving and the keeping power of the word. After this great invitation in Isaiah 55, God says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Can I put it this way? The word of God did not and will not fail you in your salvation. There is not a 67th book of the Bible that you missed out on. The truth will remain the truth. Let me give you a fifth keyword perfection. Perfection. Verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, in Jesus' prayer, he expands and clarifies that he's not only praying for those 11, for the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's you. That's me. How is it that you believe through the word of the disciples? Well, you recall that Jesus has just made promises to them. John 14, 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Someone might say, how they remember that whole prayer in John 17? Because Jesus said the Holy Spirit would tell them every word again. He promised them in John 16, 13, and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take with his mind and declare it to you. And you came to Christ because of the words of the apostles The written word of some of these men, of Peter and John and Matthew, the later edition of the Apostle Paul. Because it is in the New Testament that Christ is fully explained, that he's fully revealed. Listen, verse 20 is nothing short of stunning because it contains a promise, and that is the promise of apostolic teaching, ultimately finally expressed in our New Testament, teaching that is so perfect So divine in nature that every single future believer in Jesus Christ is categorized as having believed through their word. This is Jesus promising the inspiration of scripture. That every single letter and word is straight from the mind of God through the human authors. This is Jesus promising the inerrancy of scripture. That Scripture will never contradict itself, never contain a single error of any kind, will never lead somebody away from the truth of the gospel. This is Jesus promising the infallibility of Scripture, that it's incapable of failing. It is unfailable. It's incapable of falling short in any way, ever, at any time. This is Jesus promising the authority of Scripture, that as the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, it thereby possesses sole spiritual authority, as the sole special revelation of God. Can I put it this way? If the word of God was not perfect, it would not have the power to ignite your soul, to recognize your sin, to bring you to repentance. It would not have the power to open your eyes, to see God. It would not have the power to unstop your ears, to hear the word of Christ and to believe. It would not have the power to dig into and to soften that hardened heart of yours, to soften it, unto salvation. It had to be perfect. And this provides tremendous assurance because you can look back on how the word penetrated your own heart and you can join in the chorus of believers who say excitedly, yes, I too was forever changed when the word of God, the perfect word of God, penetrated my soul. Listen, I should take this moment to give a warning That false systems of assurance are so empty, they're so so hollow, they're so void, because they're not based on content of faith, but on feeling. Or, this is a phrase I heard this week, that I turned my life around. That now that my life is turned around, I must be saved. Now, yes, we are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, but people, quote-unquote, turn their lives around outside of Christ all the time. They decide to exercise more, to eat better to go back to school, get a better job, get off drugs through willpower or determination. There is a certain measure of improvement that's possible. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and we're capable of some of those things. But we ought to be aware of some human measure to use as your sole evidence of assurance of salvation. The evidence is that the perfect word of God did its work in your heart. You believe the gospel and then, then and only then, did you turn your life around? Because it wasn't you. It was Christ who did it. But without the content of faith as presented in the gospel, as presented in the scripture, that's a hollow, dangerous deception to say I turned my life around. Let me give you a sixth key word. Present. Present, as in gift. This is so amazingly gracious of God. Look with me at verse 14. And this is just a, a, a truth here that, Almost slips by us. It goes by so quickly. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And you might say, well, of course he did. Have you ever considered this? He didn't have to. He did not have to. The word of God does its work. Listen, when and only when God says it will. and God allows. You recall that when God commissioned um, Isaiah to preach to Israel, he gave him a warning. He warned him that his ministry would be one of proclaiming the word to those God will not save because judgment was coming for their disobedience. Let me paraphrase this using the history of Isaiah. This is like Isaiah graduating from seminary and the president of the seminary, and in this case it's God, says, you're going to minister for 60 years. Nobody's going to listen to you. And in the end, one of my kings is going to saw you in half. Welcome to the gospel ministry. How discouraging. But here was Isaiah's ministry. Here was his commission from God. God told Isaiah in Isaiah 6 verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And of course, this applied directly to the ministry of Christ himself. Jesus preached the gospel. He did countless miracles And yet John 12, beginning in verse 37, says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, And turn, and I would heal them. Listen, the Word of God did its work in your heart only because God allowed it to. He caused it to. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3 Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, mercifully, through his word, through the scriptures, verse 6 of Second Corinthians 4 says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. What a present. What a gift. The knowledge of Christ given to you from one source and one source only is his word. When somebody says to me, I I got saved when I saw a sunset, I say, you either didn't get saved or that's not when you got saved. You got saved when you heard the truth and only when you heard the truth. Let me give you a seventh key word, proof, proof. Verse seven, Jesus says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now they know. Now, if you think about the history of the disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ did not go to MIT to pick his disciples. He just went to regular people. We think about how often they were slow to believe, slow to grasp the truths of Christ. And In fact, the Gospel of Mark even gives a, a living, long-range illustration of just how slow the disciples were to believe. Mark 8 records the healing of a blind man in Bethsaida, but it was a very unusual healing. It was the only one of its kind. The the blind man was timid. He didn't speak. He had to be brought to Jesus. And when when Jesus laid his hands on him, his sight at first, remember this, was just partially restored. He said, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus laid his hands on them again and completely restored his sight. Now, this was not Jesus having to try again. This wasn't Jesus saying, well, that didn't go well. Let's do this again. No, he was making a point. The verse right before this healing sees Jesus rebuking his disciples, saying, do you not yet understand? In the verses, in the fact, the chapters right after this, Jesus said he must die and be raised from the dead. And Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me. Who? Satan. Several times after this, the disciples continued to demonstrate their their ignorance and their slowness to believe, just like the blind man who was healed slowly. But then we get to another blind man in the Gospel of Mark, blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10. And unlike the blind man in Bethsaida, this man was bold. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. And he went after him. People told him, be quiet. And the, and the more they told him to be quiet, the more he shouted out, have mercy on me. And so when he was told that Jesus was calling for him, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. He's a blind man who's running. And when Jesus simply spoke healing to him, immediately he recovered his sight, his full sight and followed Christ. And so here, in John 17, 7, when Jesus says, now they know, their eyes have been completely opened. He says in verse 8, they know in truth. He says in verse 25, these know that you have sent me. The disciples were now fully convinced of the Word of God, the person of Christ. They were internally, at the very core of their souls, completely persuaded. And for us, what is really the the ultimate proof that the Word of God is true and has led us into the paths of righteousness and salvation? The ultimate proof is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit is given to us in Romans 8, beginning of verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. There are no higher authorities than the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Listen, you you sense this. Even as you read the Scriptures As you hear the scriptures preached to you, there is a depth, there is a profundity, there is an eternality, there is an unsearchable nature to the scriptures which draws you, which excites you, which thrills you, which comforts you. Listen, I've preached over 700 sermons at Grace Bible Church. You keep coming back. Why? Because it's not about me. There's still more. There's still more. There's still more. And every preacher that I know who comes to the end of his life, who has faithfully exposited the word of God, every preacher I've known in that circumstance has one regret. I wish I had more time because there's so much more. And you know this. You know it in the depths of your soul that the word of God is true. The spirit of God has enabled you to understand this. This is what is proof of salvation. Fact: The apostle Paul says, "This is your proof of salvation." First Thessalonians one four and five. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. This is so important because listen: Jesus didn't come to Earth to do mental telepathy. He didn't come to give hints. He didn't come to draw pictures. He didn't come to simply live a quiet life to be our example. He created mankind for the capacity to learn the alphabet and then to put those word those letters together at the age of 2 and 3 and 4 to sound out small words. And then at the ages of five and six and seven to be able to read and grasp bigger words. And then to get older and to be able to grasp bigger words and bigger words. So that somebody could read to them or put in their hands a Bible. And they could read words and by these words have eternal life. Listen, just John's gospel alone tells us the singular importance and the power of the word of God, the word of Christ. John chapter 2, they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. John 3, for he whom God has sent others, the words of God. John 4, and many more believed because of his word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. John 5, whoever hears my word and believes him has sent, sent me, has eternal life. You do not have his word for you do not believe. Believe my words. John 6, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. John 7, when they heard these words, some believed on Christ. John 8, these words he spoke, abide in my word. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We go to John 10. There was a division among the Jews because of his words. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon, another said. John 12, that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. If anyone hears my words, Jesus said... The one that rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. John 14, the words I say to you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We get to John 15. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. My words abide in you. Remember the word that I have said to you. The word that is written must be fulfilled. Here in John 17, when Jesus has spoken these words, they have kept your word. I've given them the words. I've given them your word. Your word is truth. Those who will believe in me through the word. John 18, Jesus spoke these words. It was to fill the word. It was to fulfill the word. How is Jesus introduced in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the what? The word. And you have such, such comfort. Because this is the only means by which you can have eternal life. And you believed it. You believed it. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And what? Truth. Truth. You may have confidence. You may possess assurance. Because the word of God has suddenly and certainly, and for all time, done its work in power. The truth of the gospel, proclaimed by the one who is the word of God, who is the truth, has effected a certain salvation for you. Does that not give you comfort? It does me. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come now, as instructed in the word, in the scriptures, to the Lord's table. And Lord, we are thankful and mindful of the gospel of Christ that we believed through the preached word, through reading the Bible, uh, through somebody explaining it to us even just in, a, in an impromptu context. And so, Lord, uh, we come to you this morning now thinking to the centerpiece of the Bible, and that is the cross. When we think on the cross, we think of Christ's sacrifice, his goodness to us, And we would now consider, Lord, the command of Jesus Christ to remember his body, to remember his blood. Would you bless us now even as we come to the Lord's table? We pray in Christ's name, amen.